This is the coolest show brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. It's the coolest show you know. Keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show you know. In your ear, yeah, respect the expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know. It's the Hip Hop Caucus. Welcome back to the coolest show. I'm always so happy to have you join us on this in this amazing conversation with so many powerful, powerful people. And with that, I have another powerful, powerful guest, and she is Akima Levy Armstrong. <laughs> My sister, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me today. I look forward to this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I know your background. I mean, I know you are a lawyer. I know you're an activist. I know you served as the uh, president of the Minneapolis uh, NWCP. I know you've done so many work. You're now running the the Wayfinder Foundation. Uh, I mean, you just, I know you got, man, you wear, I, I thought I wore a lot of hats. And I, you, you, you are definitely wearing a good bit of hats. But I want to start just from folks who don't know. Uh, tell our audience who is Nakima Valdez Levy Armstrong. Well, again, thank you, Reverend Yearwood, for having me. As you said, I'm an activist and an attorney. I'm based in Minneapolis, but I was born actually in Jackson, Mississippi. I'm a descendant of folks who were enslaved. My grandma was a cafeteria lady. So all of the, those backgrounds play a role in who I am today. When I was eight, I moved to South Central Los Angeles. So that was a whole other world, um, seeing the impacts of the war on drugs, on my community, poverty. I lived in a black and brown neighborhood. And um, at nine years old, after seeing all of that, I decided that I wanted to become a lawyer so that I could try to change things on behalf of my community. So I wound up going to the University of Southern California for my undergrad, where I majored in African-American studies. And then I went to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana to go to law school. I wound up teaching there as a visitor within a couple of years out of law school. And then I became a law professor in my 20s. And um, I joined the University of St. Thomas Law School faculty which I served on for about 13 years. I left as a full professor of law with tenure um, because by that point I had become an activist. I wanted to go outside of the ivory tower of academia and do more on behalf of my community. I ran for mayor of Minneapolis in 2017 on a police accountability platform. And although I did not win my election, I have continued to remain involved both from a political perspective, but as well as from an activism and advocacy perspective to demand the changes that we need to see in our community. So with regard to the killing of George Floyd, many of us had been out on the front lines for years, really since um, Trayvon Martin was killed and since Ferguson, um, taking to the streets, shutting things down, getting arrested, going into the halls of power to demand change. And we were also involved in demanding justice for George Floyd, um, having organized the very first protests around the nation and the world um, with fellow organizers after George Floyd was killed and taken to the streets 
literally until we saw the conviction of Derek Chauvin and now the most recent conviction of um, all officers who were involved in the killing of George Floyd. And we've continued to advocate for change. And I would say most recently, I served as the co-chair of a work group on community safety in Minneapolis. Um, I was appointed by the mayor, um, along with two or three dozen people, to formulate policy changes focused on um, community safety as well as public safety and how to overhaul the Minneapolis Police Department. So again, thank you for having me. I'm a mother. I'm a wife. I'm also an ordained reverend as well. Awesome. Um, well, I'm happy well, to be here. well, we about to we about to get into all that what you just said there. I mean that that's so powerful. And in in my world, particularly in, in hip hop politics, I came I came across seeing your work when you were definitely throwing down uh, with that uh, that protest. Um, in Minneapolis, that's you know came across my radar clearly, as we just heard. You have a dynamic background that's been going on for some time, but you know how when folks come across your radar, you get to see them and kind of see what they're doing. So I just want to say that from that standpoint, we appreciate you. Um, thank you for that, uh, both working in the suites and the streets. So we we appreciate what you've been doing in that in that aspect. For folks, I, li- I like folk to know people's community, you know, because you mentioned from Jackson to L.A. to Minneapolis. So who would you say is your community? I would say that my community is primarily the Black community, and I most closely identify with low-income and working-class Black folks because of my background of growing up in Mississippi as well as growing up um, in South Central L.A., and being influenced by the people in my community and being in the struggle with my community. But I would also say my community includes our ancestors, the folks who came before us, who paved the way, who fought very hard um, in light of all of the conditions that they were experiencing and somehow found a way to persevere for us. So I often tap into the wisdom of our ancestors um, and fighting for racial justice because we can't do this alone. It's a spiritual battle. I am a woman of faith. I could not do this without the power of God, um, you know, ministering to me, encouraging me, empowering me to persevere because it is a very heavy lift, as you know, when you're taking on these battles and when you're advocating for those who typically don't have a voice in this society. So all of those folks are my community. Actually, I, I want to, I'm, I'm going to dig in. I'm going to come back to Jackson. That's important. Shout out to so many who have done the amazing work there in Jackson throughout our history, from Medica Evers to Fannie Lou and uh, Franklin Hamer, and so many, so many, so many just uh, heroes and heroines who have just done it um, in 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 Jackson. I think that's and that's one of the reasons we're going to get to that why Jackson is faces some of the stuff that it faces. Um, but I want to get talk about spirituality actually because you mentioned that. Because I think that many of us in this work, um, work, um, we're working for liberation for Black people and and for and for particularly um, people of color, Brown, and Black, and Indigenous communities, so they um, can be free. Um, and, and in the words of Fannie Lou Hamer, "Ain't nobody free until everybody free." 
And so I actually want to talk about that because in this work, we then work with allies in this movement and we work with allies um, of a lighter hue. <laughs> and in that, we, we, we are sometimes hit this crossroad where sometimes the allies don't understand how we, particularly people of color, black, brown, and indigenous people, rely upon our, our, our faith to do this work. And it could be either, as from either Christianity, it could be Muslim, it could be, it could be, it could be our folks who are dealing with their, their African spirituality, but we rely upon that, right? Talk to, talk to people why that's important, because I tell a lot of people that you can't do this work unless you have something invisible to pull on. For me, I'm a Christian, so I pull on that as my, as my rock, but Whatever somebody pulls on, they can pull on what they need to put. But I tell them you can't because if you pull on things outside of that, it will consume you, and and you can become bitter and jaded and cynical if you don't if you think it's all about you doing this work. And faith helps to ground you. Talk to us about that because as you have been out here organizing and running for office and and running organizations. I know for a fact you can't do that without having something to pull on to keep you going. Tell, talk to folks about that for a quick second. Absolutely. I think that's really the main thing, right? At least for me personally and so many others who I've been on the front lines with is being called into this work, having a sense of purpose in terms of why we're here um, on this earth, why we've been blessed with all the gifts and talents that we have. It's not just for ourselves. It's often to support and help those around us. And so from a very young age, um, attending church as a child in Mississippi, some of those lessons were passed along to me. And then uh, even when I lived in South Central L.A., we would have a local church that would bring school buses into our neighborhood where many of us lived in apartment buildings and they would take us to church. And so my faith kept me grounded. And then as I got older, I actually developed a a relationship with God where I call on God. I pray to God. I see God for direction. And sometimes we're in the midst of a crisis on the front lines. And instead of panicking, I have to stop and pray and ask God for a sense of direction in the midst of the things that we're going through. And I often call upon God just to help me purify my heart, to walk in humility to not become bitter because it is easy for that to happen in this work where you're seeing injustices happen over and over again. You're watching videotapes of people being brutally murdered and knowing that in most instances, there is no justice and no accountability. All those things can harden our hearts and actually move us further away from having a spiritual grounding in this work where we can just operate out of pure anger and frustration. But I don't think that anger and frustration is enough to get us towards justice and healing. Mm. I I feel that only love can get us that way and uh, get us to that point. And I don't think that love means just butterflies and rainbows and just this, you know, idealization of what love means. From my perspective, love means taking the fight to levels that most people don't expect. Because you want to see people be able to live and to breathe free, to have a sense of relief, to know that God loves them, that they're children of God, 
But when you're constantly dealing with these policies and these laws, the levels of poverty that we see in our community and the injustice, it can definitely cloud people's perspectives about who God really is and his, the love that God has for all of his people. So my faith has definitely been what has grounded me, what has given me the strength and courage to do some of the things that I've been able to do. Powerful. Powerful. Akima, talk, talk to us about your, your hometown, where, where you were, where you were born. Um, there's, as you know, there's a crisis, there's a water crisis happening. And there's a public narrative about the water crisis that is playing out in Jackson, Mississippi. Given that this is where you were from, can you talk about, about why the crisis is not overnight and the long-term struggle for affordable, drinkable, and a, a, a water <laughs> who can swim in for Black communities? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when I think about the folks of Jackson, it warms my heart because the folks in Jackson, um, from my perspective, are people who will give you the shirt off your back. Right? Folks where you come to their house to visit, they make sure you have a meal and something to drink. It's just this level of Southern hospitality that is a part of the culture of folks in Jackson, Mississippi. But there's also this narrative of struggle, knowing you know that a lot of folks are descendants of people who were enslaved and or folks who have borne the brunt of the system of Jim Crow in Mississippi and being denied access to equal opportunity or even feelings of safety. Uh, when I look at the state of Mississippi as a whole, I think it's important for people to know that Mississippi is the poorest state of the co- in the country. Mississippi has the highest percentage of Black folks in the country. And in the city of Jackson, where I was born, um, Black people are about 82% of the population. And so we're talking about um, low, primarily low-income Black folks who are bearing the brunt of this water crisis that has been years in the making, as you just stated. They have allowed the infrastructure of the water plant to deteriorate in Jackson. They have not provided proper upkeep of the plant. They also don't have enough workers who know how to maintain the plant and keep it running effectively. And I think that part of why this has been allowed to happen is the fact that Jackson is overwhelmingly Black. They've dealt with a lot of white flight, which um, results in a dwindling of resources and services and attention to issues that people experience in the city. We have um, a Republican governor in Mississippi who stated at a press conference recently that water isn't free, you know, which was really offensive for him. Uh, to make a statement like that, knowing people are suffering, they can't even brush their teeth with that water. They can't even, you know, take a shower uh, without worrying about their their bodies being contaminated um, as a result of that water. They clearly cannot drink the water. It's impacted children from being able to go to school because there is no clean water. And so for the governor to boil it down to water isn't free is egregious and unacceptable and uh, represents a callous disregard for human life, and in particular, Black life. The governor also stated at that press conference that um, people need to pay their water bills. And I took that as a, a sign and symbol um, of, of trying to blame Black folks for the situation that they're in right now, as if the average resident of Jackson had any control over the deteriorating water system, which again, this has been going on for years. 
but the issue was made worse over the summer with flooding happening. And I think around July is when people receive boil water notices telling them do not use or drink the water um, unless the water was boiled. My team and I actually went to Mississippi in May. We met with, met with Black women organizers there. We didn't know that there was a water crisis. We carried on as if, you know, everything was normal. And then later we find out from the women we're working with that the water's brown. That is disgusting. That is undrinkable. It's hard for me to believe that in an affluent white community, this would have been allowed to happen. This should have been front and front page news. There should have been a sense of urgency to address these issues. And we know that even when they do fix the water system, there will be longstanding repercussions as a result of this water crisis, including the lead that's in the water. And we know that lead is associated with low rates of IQ, um, low IQ rates, um, and other types of uh, health issues that can particularly impact children as well as vulnerable adults. You know, as you're, as you're talking, one of the things we say here is that climate justice is racial justice, and racial justice is climate justice. And as you're just laying it out there, it is clear that that intersection um, of those two are without a doubt connected in this tragedy in Jackson, Mississippi. You know, I also, and I know because obviously can look at your your timeline, you know, you don't you don't give no one's age, but, you know, and, and with black folk, you can't tell no way it's because black don't crack. So you don't even know, it could be 91 years old. It could be like, you don't even know how old they are. <laughs> and they look like they 30. <laughs> and so, you know, it don't even really matter actually. But one thing for young people they've been saying here is that they they done fighting, they don't want this, they don't want to have the Jackson story be the same story in 2032, right? They don't want to be like, they they they, they done, they, they just can't keep we kicking this can. So what 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 do you think? And I just want to shout out to so many young people down in Jackson, so many powerful black women who are down in Jackson, make this doing, so many just black organizations who are getting it, so many just organizations and period who are doing some great work. I just want to make sure I acknowledge you. We see you. And so I make sure that people know that we see you doing it and doing that great work down there. But how do we just fix this, Nikima? How, how do we just get to the point where, listen, this, this got to stop. Like, you know, you know the, 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 the quote saying, you know, we done dying. You know, how do we get to this point where this, we going to stop this? What, do we, what, what needs to be done from your perspective to fix Jackson um, and particularly not keep dealing with this struggle for affordable, uh, clean drinking water? You know, that's a really great question. And I think about James Baldwin in the fire next time. It should not take it getting to that point, right? Um, to have an environment where everyone is valued and respected, where we're liberated, where we're not having a fight for basic necessities such as clean water, and food on our tables and a roof over our heads. But Dr. King warned us about this. He talked about what is happening with our values here in this country. He talked about the triple giants of uh, racism, militarism, and materialism that were impacting uh, our focus and ability to care for the poor and to help people become upwardly mobile and have the resources that we need. So this has been a long time in the making. 
And what I've seen as someone out on the front lines is the fact that a lot of these problems actually are solvable. But I think that the key is for folks who are able to live and breathe and have everything that they need to get involved in this fight. And that can take many forms. You know, you can be in um, corporate America and use your time, your talents and your resources to help bring attention to the issues that we are talking about. People can show up at City Hall. They can show up at the governor's mansion. They can write letters to elected officials. They can run for office and become elected officials. And or when people come knocking on our doors, as we know they're doing right now, because we're coming upon midterm elections, we can get asked for things in exchange for our votes. Too often we give away our votes to people who we don't see again until need, they need our vote the next time. And so it's, it's incumbent upon us to understand the game that has been set up the way that it has and to realize how many of us are being used as pawns in those games when we need to learn the rules, get in position to rewrite the rules, to actually change the game. Facts. So that's what I think it's going to take. All facts. All facts. Right there. Oh, man. Um, I want to pivot a little bit from, actually, I'm going to come up, come up north a little bit <laughs> from Mississippi to Minneapolis. Um, one thing that Kima, you, you may notice is, and probably notice if you ever seen me, I've, I've, I wear a lot of hats and, I've done that through my whole time in, in hip-hop politics, which is kind of my thing. And one of the things, for particularly people who have been killed by police brutality, uh, I will get a hat with their name on it. So one of the most unfortunate things is that I now have literally hundreds of hats, um, from Eric Garner to Sandra Bland to, to George Floyd. And... Um, I only actually know one out of all those hats. I've only met one person when they were living. Um, and that was actually Erica Garner, the daughter of Eric Garner. Um, mm. um, and so that was, that's one of my saddest hats. Cause I have those two hats side by side on my, on, on my show. And now I'm actually very good friends. I'm actually on the, uh, leading, I'm on the, on the board with Emerald Garner. So of her, of her, of her foundation. But I, I bring that up because I don't, I've never, I never, I haven't met most of these people before, but they become instantly family and I'm instantly risking and putting my life on the line. You, you do this, have done the exact same thing, particularly in the situation with George Floyd and others. But I bring up George Floyd because of this. I want to kind of get your reflection on it. If I get to some stories about where do we go now two years later and all that kind of stuff. I want to get you just your, just your reaction to this. You know, one thing that me and George Floyd share is a birthday. We're, we were, were both born on October 14th. And I bring that up because when, you think, when I think about that for me, I prayerfully will see another birthday. George Floyd will not. What's your just initial reaction when you think about just the fact of another black, brown person who won't see their born date because of police brutality? 
What's your thoughts on George Floyd from that perspective? I think that is truly outrageous and horrifying that people are not able to make it to their next birthday because of this system of policing and the lack of accountability and proper enforcement of the laws that we have in place. The killing of George Floyd was completely avoidable, just like the killing of so many other Black men, women, and children throughout the nation have, who have been killed as a result of law enforcement. And I still don't think that overall there is a strong sense of urgency with regard to addressing the systemic issues that have led to killings at the hands of police. Even um, after everything happened with George Floyd, um, one of the things that we witnessed um, in the aftermath of that was dwindling crowds. You know, at one point uh, during the summer of 2020, really for months, we would have thousands of people showing up outside the governor's mansion, outside of City Hall, the government center, wherever we gathered to protest and demand changes, people were present. And the power of the people made a difference in terms of the changes that have started to happen, including, as I mentioned earlier, the conviction of all four officers who killed George Floyd. But after Derek Chauvin was convicted, we started to see a dramatic decline in terms of the number of people showing up and helping to apply pressure. And that sends a message that, you know, if something is in the media that people think is worthy, then people will show up and then they go back to business as usual. But we have to remember that this is a marathon and not a sprint, which is what I think Nipsey Hussle would want us to know. It's a marathon and not a sprint. So that means consistency. And it also means, again, not everybody has to be in the streets, but everyone does need to be figuring out what is their lane and what are the mechanisms that they can use and the levers that they can push and pull to help bring about change. And people have to see George Floyd as if he's their brother or their uncle or right. their father. And most of the time, there's a disconnect. But you can relate because you share the same birthday with the man who should still be here to celebrate with his family and to be a part of the community. No, it's it's a it's something that I when I realized that it, it hits you it hits you differently. We're also in the same age bracket too, so it definitely hits you from that aspect. But listen, you know, on this in this conversation we have real talk. So people expect that in this in this form. So two years later, you know, we have to ask, what did we win or change or do? Um mm -hmm. after all of that protest with George Floyd? Well, I would say that, number one, it's important for people to remember that even though the murder of George Floyd was captured on video, thanks to 17-year-old Darnella Frazier, um, a young Black female high school student, uh, that still did not guarantee that there would be any form of justice for George Floyd. How many videos have we all witnessed of the police unjustly murdering someone only to later find out that no charges are being brought against that person. And in most instances, they're not even fired from the police department in which they work and have been allowed to perpetuate these harms. And so it was a literally a miracle for, for um, Derek Chauvin to be convicted 
And that only happened because of people taking to the streets, as well as us applying pressure to the governor of Minnesota to take the case out of the hands of the local county prosecutor who has a more cozy relationship with law enforcement and who has typically not held law enforcement accountable and who, as a matter of fact, when he first got the case, only charged Derek Chauvin with third degree murder, um, the statute that didn't even really fit this particular crime. And he only charged Derek Chauvin and not the other three officers. And he also wrote a complaint that made it seem as if George Floyd was responsible for his own murder. So when we saw this happening, we went and we advocated to the governor to demand that he use his executive power to remove that case from the county attorney and to put it in the hands of the attorney general. And anyone who watched the trial saw the level of excellence that was reflected by the um, attorney general's office in terms of how they prosecuted that case. That wouldn't have happened, as I said, without the power of the people. That was a major change and it was unprecedented. And it resulted in not one, but all four officers being convicted, as well as the federal government getting involved. We have been asking for years for a DOJ investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department. And finally, they heard us um, after George Floyd was killed. And that is still an ongoing investigation right now. We also had the Minnesota Department of Human Rights step up and investigate the Minneapolis Police Department, something that they had the power to do all along. It was in the aftermath of George Floyd being killed and worldwide protests that the Department of Human Rights got involved. And they have actually tried to pressure the um, mayor and the city of Minneapolis to enter into a consent decree with them. That has never happened before in the history of the state of Minnesota. And so that's something that's being negotiated right now, in addition to us waiting for the recommendations from the Department of Justice. We also saw different jurisdictions step up around the country and begin to change some of the laws that they have on the books, like ending qualified immunity, um, bringing greater accountability uh, to law enforcement, as well as reducing police department budgets. Those are things that would not have happened were it not for the killing of George Floyd and everyone's attention being on those issues. We saw corporate America begin to allocate more resources and talk about these issues and incorporate um, the what happened to George Floyd and the issue of uh, policing in America as part of their agendas and things that they need to focus on. Now, do I think that they've done enough? No. But do I think that they've done more than what we've seen probably since the civil rights movement? Yes. And so those are things we have to look at and we have to acknowledge, even though it's still a fraction of what is owed and what is deserved. But if we treat this moment as if it's irrelevant, then we're erasing what it took, you know, to get here. The fact that black blood was spilled on the ground unnecessarily, the loss of George Floyd to his family, his friends and his community, and the sacrifices that people made in the midst of a pandemic to go out into the streets, put their lives and their bodies on the line to demand change. I think about the fact that as I grew up in South Central, um, witnessing the videos um, of um, the police beating of Rodney King mm -hmm. and, and people realizing that the, the system was being manipulated 
so that those officers would never be really held accountable criminally for what they did um, in that situation. And how, as a former L.A. resident, we still talk about the beating of Rodney King and how there was no justice and people had to go and get street justice. So I compare that to Derek Chauvin and I'm like, imagine if he wasn't convicted. Some people try to brush it off as if that wasn't a big deal. That was definitely a big deal, especially here in the Jim Crow North where police have literally been away, been allowed to get away with murder, whether it was caught on camera or not. So those are things we have to celebrate as we continue to push for the changes that we want to see happen. We do. We definitely do. We, and we going, we have to celebrate that and make sure that because those, those victories were hard fought. And you, you I forgot we were out there with masks on but during the pandemic. We still, still should have a mask on many places, but we definitely had it on. <laughs> right. right. You didn't know well, what was going to happen. Right. We didn't yeah, know. You didn't know. Yeah. You, you didn't know what you no. meant. You was marching and somebody was chatting, you know, who yes. streets, our streets. They, they, they had cough. Everybody would stop. Look at them. You know, what I mean? we like, hold up. Wait yeah. a minute. Exactly. <laughs> you, you out here coughing with the who streets. No, you can't be out here. <laughs> doing it all. And then you got the police with their tear gas, their rubber bullets. Oh, man. You need a pandemic within a pandemic. <laughs> then think about the financial impacts, right? Yeah. Kids are home. Parents can't go to work. People struggling. And they're still loud in the street. Like, that yeah. is just that blows my mind. No, it, it, it was it it, it it shows why that moment. And it's just the thing, though. But it's the it's the hit. It's the, it's the thing, though, Nikki. Was it, it? We know it wasn't a moment. We know that it has created a movement. We know that. There's no doubt. We're not even going to play that 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 process because we 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 know. But the question is about sustaining the movement, right? Mm-hmm. Was it a was it a bump? Was it you know many people within philanthropy talk about the George Floyd bump in which that was a, a series of resources that went out at that time in that window um, mm-hmm. and you know people's attention span in regards to racial justice and criminal justice was definitely keen during that time frame. Are we in a position to sustain that though? Because I think that. That's the important part as because we want to continue. We don't want to we don't want to grow and then shrink back. We don't want to have to keep playing that rubber band game. Right. We don't want to be like, man, we movement grows and then we come back down and it, and it grows. But we and also we don't want to grow at the expense of the blood of our sisters and brothers in the street. We don't want that as well. That's not that's not we want to grow on the premise of fighting injustice. But how do we do that? How how do we continue to work that started in this movement of the streets of Minneapolis and across the nation to the ballot box, if, that, if that's a part of it, to organizing, to political education? How does that work continue without these needs for bumps of our mm-hmm. folks being killed? Right. Absolutely. I think that it continues by people making a commitment to fight for change until we actually see the changes that need to happen. And we have two other, I'm sure there's many more, but two other points in our history, right? And that's the long history of slavery and that institution and the impacts and how you would have stops and starts from people who would mobilize, who would get organized, who would try to convince their fellow man or woman to push for an end to slavery. We also had the folks who worked with Harriet Tubman on the Underground Railroad 
who put their bodies on the line. We have folks who ran for office, who um, use their political power and leverage to push for an end to slavery. And we had enslaved folks who led revolts, right? And so it was a combination of things happening simultaneously over a period of decades and even centuries to get us to the end of slavery. And if we look at the system of uh, Jim Crow in this country, very similar um, in terms of the approach of multiple groups of people, right? Starting with Rosa Parks and then the Black church um, and the Black middle class and low-income Black folks mobilizing along with white allies, white religious figures, et cetera, to bring an end to uh, Jim Crow segregation in that particular system. We have to remember that the civil rights movement lasted for at least 13 years, if you count the time from Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat to the assassination of Dr. King. So it goes back to us remembering that it takes commitment, being steadfast, that it's a marathon and not a sprint, and that we can't give up just you know when we see little changes happening. We have to build upon that momentum until we see widespread systemic change. Then everybody has a role to play. But typically, I think about the quote of Margaret Mead that says, never underestimate the power of a small group of dedicated and committed people to change the world. I'm paraphrasing. But essentially, it's usually a small group that builds enough energy, momentum, and has enough fire under them to help mobilize others to get in the fight for change. So I have adopted and, you know, adapted my mindset to understand that sometimes you don't need thousands, sometimes you need 10 Mm -hmm. willing to show up with the spirit of bulldog tenacity and unwilling to leave until we see change happen. Until we see change happen. And so that has been inspiring to me to know, look, you plus God can be a majority in any situation. Come on now. You better stop helping preaching here in the kingdom. Don't, 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 don't get it started up here now. <laughs> <laughs> we need that kind of motivation. I mean, yeah, you, you can get it started. You, you, can, you, you can't. You definitely you can't. can't. If Rosa Parks can do what she did, <laughs> if Harriet Tubman, Fannie Lou Hamer, names we don't know, never heard of, could do what they did, then what's stopping the rest of us? They didn't have Twitter, TikTok, all the luxuries <laughs> that we have. So what is our excuse in this right. century? You no, know, that's that's not real. We have no excuse. You know, but let me ask you something on that, though. I know I'm around with the hip hop caucus. I'm around a lot of all day, every day. I'm around young people. That's all I'm around um, in 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 that movement. And the one thing that I tell them a lot is and you mentioned it a couple of times already is about Jim Crow. Right. You mentioned I like and I like Jim Crow North and, and Jim Crow South. Right. And one thing, but one thing I tell them is that the same way your mama and daddy had you, Jim Crow had children too. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and, but Jim Crow children are much more sophisticated than Jim Crow. And yes. I like to say, you know, it's been heard, you know, I could say that I call them either Jane or James. Crow Jr. Esquire. Yes. And the reason I bring that up is because I want you to talk about litigation. And that's going to kind of take me into criminal justice. But 
I want to talk about that notion. I'm trying to explain to a lot of young people that demonstration is important and key, but demonstration without legislation or demonstration without litigation leads to frustration. Mm-hmm. So talk to us a little bit about why, why we, the, the enemy in essence, or the folks we're dealing with are much more, I mean, listen, they will listen to hip hop. They will come hang out with you. They will, they will, they will, they will, they will, but they will destroy you in different ways. Mm-hmm. Why is it important for us to have strong institutions? And why is it important for us to really have political education? Well, I would say that in our history, those are the things that have sustained us, right? Community-based organizations, uh, the Black church, um, Black caucuses, uh, the work of, of Black women with Black women's clubs, you know, at the start of, you know, the juvenile justice system, trying to make sure that they nurtured and protected Black children. And so institutions are a vital part of our heritage and our history, and they've been a sustaining force for us as a people. We need folks who are running the institutions to have adequate support for the work that they're doing, because you're often fighting battles on so many fronts, those that are visible and invisible, that can can try to drain your life source. And so you need to have strong folks around you who are supporting you as you are running an institution that is seeking to bring about change as well as racial justice. And we also, we need more, I would say, Black lawyers as well as allies to step up when it comes to litigation. Um, So often people cannot find adequate legal representation when they are experiencing these issues. Here in the Twin Cities, we've been able to work with Ben Crump, who has flown here multiple times to represent uh, victims and their families in these situations. Jeff Storms, who is a local attorney, uh, and many others who are now beginning to step forward and take on these cases. But there are so many more folks who still don't get adequate legal representation because their case didn't make the news or it's not considered high profile. And they're left to suffer in silence and be re-triggered and re-traumatize when another killing occurs. So I think we need an awakening overall across all of our systems and institutions, because even in the midst of the killing of George Floyd and the aftermath, we did, I don't think we had many institutions that put themselves at risk, you know, to reallocate resources or to make changes. Some of them put some money out and some tinkered around the edges. But did they radically shift the way that they do business, the way that they think? Did they create pipeline programs to help elevate uh, young Black folks who deserve to be in some of these leadership positions and in positions of power and who can actually affect change? So I think overall, as Dr. King would say, we need a revolution of values. Right. And we have not gotten there yet. I think we saw glimpses of what is possible but we're not there yet. Therefore, we can't give up and sit back and expect for things to miraculously change. It's going to take us rolling up our sleeves and doing the heavy lifting and being consistent in applying pressure in the fight for justice. And sometimes that's applying pressure 
to those who look like us to not be complacent and complicit just because they got into those seats. I would argue that they have an even greater responsibility because of the positions that they hold. That's right. That is correct. And and folks can understand that. It's it's okay, too, to create that tension. It's okay to, to ask, to ask folks, you know, what you're doing and, and to try to, cause we, we, I believe that iron sharpens iron. And so we, we, yes. we, we, we need that. Tell us about the work of the Wayfinder Foundation. Yes. So the Wayfinder Foundation is a national organization that focuses on black and brown women across the country who are on the front lines fighting for racial justice and social change. So most of the women who are connected to our organization, uh, they're mothers, they're black and brown. Many of them have come from low-income communities. Many of them work. And even with all that they have going on, they still find time to organize in their communities. They're, they're you know, not necessarily visible. They're not well-funded, but they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And so we seek to come alongside those women, try to amplify their work, Provide, we provide financial support as well as technical support. We make sure that if there are conferences that they want to attend, that they're able to do so. If they need a computer, you know, things like that. Um, and we encourage them to also consider entrepreneurship as they are doing activism on the front lines so that they have a way of bring, generating additional revenue to help take some of the financial pressure off of them as they're standing up. And we will mobilize women to issue calls to action to the powers that be so that the voices of these women are being heard and so that they have a seat at the table. I love that. And 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 if folks want to get involved with that, how how can they how can they get in how can they find the Wayfinder Foundation? So they can go to our website and they can leave a message at www.wayfinder.foundation. They can also find us on Instagram. Facebook and Twitter. We offer a number of fellowships annually in key cities across the country. So right now we have fellows in Mississippi, in the twin cities of Minnesota, um, in Los Angeles. We have um, previous fellows in New Orleans, Washington, D.C., and Oakland. And we'll be renewing our call for more fellows as we head into the first quarter of 2023. And so we're often looking for women who are focused on two key areas education justice, and criminal justice. And we ask that women propose a project that they want to start or that they're working on that we can help them with over the course of a given year. And once they're connected to Wayfinder, they're always a part of the Wayfinder family. So Mm -hmm. women reach back and say, hey, I'm working on this. Can you support me? Um, I, I have a goal for doing this. Do you have resources to help? And we do our best to help um, women in those situations and who are connected to our organization. So it's really a blessing at this stage of life to be in my mid forties and able to give back in this way and work alongside of dynamic women, again, who most people may not have ever heard of, but who are making magic happen on behalf of their communities. Nikki, I just got a few more questions for you. This time goes by so fast. I definitely wanted to ask you about, you know, something that was really hitting and it was about Biden and President mm-hmm. President Biden, as you know, pardoned all federal offenses of simple marijuana possession. That was, I mean, that that's a that's a big deal. 
Um, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? And did he go far enough or what, what more can be done? Yes. Yeah, so as you just suggested, President Biden, he made a sweeping announcement saying that he was going to pardon federal prisoners who are incarcerated for simple marijuana possession. And this could potentially impact thousands of people who have been caught up uh, in our draconian drug laws, particularly around marijuana or what I call cannabis, you know, which is actually the proper name for it. Um, I think that it was it's a step in the right direction. He also talked about the fact that marijuana is still being classified as a schedule one drug alongside heroin and other serious drugs and how that needs to change, which we agree with. He also called on governors around the country to reevaluate and reexamine their marijuana laws and to potentially release people who um, have been convicted for simple marijuana possession. So I think that he definitely made a step in the right direction. But do I think that he's gone far enough in terms of the power that he has? No, I do not. I'm part of a coalition of black and brown women who are calling, who are plotting Joe Biden's decision, but also calling him to help end the war on drugs once and for all. He was one of the proponents of the crime bill in 1996, which we know catalyzed the war on drugs and mass incarceration and turned us into an incarceration nation. We have about 5% of the world's population, but 25% of its prisoners, primarily because of the war on drugs. And to give people more context, in 1980, there were roughly 500,000 incarcerated people in America. The war on drugs began I would say with um, Nixon in the 70s, but then the federal law changes in the mid-1980s. So in 1980, 500,000 people incarcerated. By 1990, that number doubled to a million. By the year 2000, that number reached 2.0 million and counting. And that is, those are federal prisoners as well as state prisoners. And so we want President Joe Biden to step up to help end the war on drugs and to make sure Black people receive something in exchange for helping him secure that seat in the White House, along with many other congressional representatives. We want the Congressional Black Caucus to step up to the plate and demonstrate stronger leadership because they help advocate for the war on drugs, thinking that they were protecting our community. But we have not seen them there as far as the fallout and the generational impacts and effects that the war on drugs has caused not to mention the trillions of dollars that have been spent uh, fighting this war on drugs when, as Pac said, they should have been fighting a war on poverty. So no. that turning point needs to happen. That that ha- had to happen. And I love how, you know, I love, Attorney Armstrong, how you make sure everybody gets a piece. <laughs> you ain't nobody. It reminds me of my mom told me one time she had, she she was one of 11, and she said one time a fight broke out between the boys and when when her dad came into the room, not only did the two boys get it who was fighting, but everybody who was in there in the room got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. Right? They all need the smoke. Because <laughs> they experiencing the smoke inside. You, of you ain't holding back. I just <laughs> everybody. If you in the room. And you just hanging out and you were sleeping in the corner, you're going to get some of this smoke. Nikita, make sure everybody, everybody, 
everybody going to catch a little bit of and I love it. I love it. I love it. But So listen, I, I got to ask this. I got this. So this is really my last question. I just want to ask about you and, and, a, and a closing thing. But I just want to speak, speak of that smoke. <laughs> and, you know, I know you have been involved with, you know, a current petition on change.org related to the welfare scandal involving Brett Favre. So since we passing out smoke, we to bring him in here too. He can get some too. Oh, yeah. He so share, share some information about the petition what it does and, and, and why and why it matters. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> so we actually launched a petition on change.org calling for accountability for Brett Favre. One of our hashtags is charge Brett Favre. He needs to be criminally prosecuted from our perspective for his role in trying to divert millions of dollars that were meant for the TANF program, Temporary Assistance to Needy Families in Mississippi, which again, poor state in the country. This money was supposed to go to help feed our kids, put a roof over families' heads, and instead Brett Favre lobbied the governor of the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, to get money to build a volleyball facility at his alma mater, the University of Southern Mississippi. And his daughter was a, a student there and a volleyball player. So he wanted $5 million for a new volleyball facility. He also tried to get $3 million for a drug company that he is heavily invested in. And he was in um, text communications with these individuals asking questions such as, will the media find out about this? You know, because he knew that what he was doing was wrong. From my perspective, even though he's trying to deny that he knew that those were welfare funds, this man has made tens of millions of dollars over the course of his career. He should have been able to pay for this volleyball facility out of pocket or, or leverage some of his wealthy, affluent celebrity friends to get the money. But instead, he went right into the heart of the beast and tried to steal money out of the mouths of, of uh, low-income men, women, and children, which is unacceptable, a disproportionate number of which are Black men, women, and children. So we know if Brett Favre was a black man who did this, his mugshot would be everywhere. He would be in custody by now. He would um, have lost all of his corporate sponsorships. But instead, we have companies like CrossFit continuing to maintain their relationship with Brett Favre. We've had um, ESPN and, and Sirius XM push pause on, on Brett Favre's um, podcasts and different shows. They have not ended those relationships, which they need to. Brett Favre has paid back roughly $1.1 million that he was given um, by the officials and the nonprofits uh, in, in um, Mississippi for speeches he never gave. So he gave back $1.1 million, but he still owes over $220,000 in interest. And I would argue he owes reparations to folks in Mississippi who needed those resources in order to put food on their tables. So we're calling for accountability. We want the Attorney General of Mississippi, as well as President Joe Biden and the Department of Justice to hold Brett Favre accountable and not, not allow him to get away with this because of white privilege and being a part of the Old Boys Network. It's time out for that. And like you said, he needs to get that smoke. And he needs yeah, he, to get it. You just, you, just, you just gave it. You know, he, he, he's getting it and you just gave it. Um, attorney Nakima Levy Armstrong, I just have one thing to ask you as we close. 
mm-hmm. giving our, one of our producers of now this multi award winning show here. Um, we just thank you. We just actually just our producer just told me just won two more awards, and that really goes to all of you who are listening. We want to thank you for making this just an amazing conversation where we can bring BIWAC, Black, Indigenous, women of color. Uh, leaderful voices into this into the mix, and we're so happy for you to be listening. But this is my question for you: Is that given your impact? And one of Tamara is one of our producers. She has this term called multi-hyphenate, which means you just do you have you just do so many different things, and you fit that so well. But given your impact as a multi-hyphenate, doing the work of civil and human rights, what's the legacy you hope to leave behind? Well, one, I want to thank you for allowing me the opportunity to be on your powerful and amazing show. I want to congratulate you for the success that you have had. And I've just prayed blessings upon you, your producers and everyone for that continued success. That is a part of your legacy. So thank you for that. I would say for me, a part of my legacy is ensuring that a significant shift begins to happen with regard to the quality of life for Black people in this country who have borne the brunt of slavery, of Jim Crow, of institutional racism, white supremacy, you name it. We have borne the brunt of it. And we deserve relief. We deserve liberation. We deserve access to opportunity. And I feel that part of my calling here on this earth is to use my education my resources and the experiences that I've had as a Black woman to fight for justice and to fight for the changes that we want and need to see and to do things that most folks think are are impossible because of the power of God making things that were seemingly impossible now possible, making things that were invisible now visible and giving us the ability to move us towards the arc of justice. And so that's what I feel called to do. Um, I also wrote a children's book that is coming out um, for Black History Month. It's called J is for Justice. And it is based on my experience on the front lines as an organizer, along with my now five-year-old daughter, Asada Joy, who has joined me uh, in many protests, who's asked questions, who now knows how to chant and be amongst the people. And so I want her and children around the country to understand that this struggle is a part of our legacy and they have a role of standing up and speaking up and fighting for justice. Amen. And I I asked this for the Wayfinder, but how can people follow and contact you? So they can follow me on Instagram um, at Nikima L, N-E-K-I-M-A-L. I'm also on Facebook as well. Um, and they can find me at um, NakimaLevyArmstrong.com. And that is our guest today, Nakima Vadez Levy Armstrong. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Thank you, my sister. Thank you so much, Rev Yearwood. I appreciate you. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast 
and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to repeat. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.